This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Goblin Fruit and Fairy Cobblers, the horror of getting what you truly want in speculative fiction. So I would like to point out that Jules is the first one to bring up fairies in this episode and right <laughs> in the title, so I'm, 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 lif- <laughs> I'm lifting the F-ban in this one because this is very much going to touch on the fair folk. Yes, absolutely. Um, but there's a surprising number of books that actually draw on a lot of these tropes and ideas and things without necessarily referencing fairies or mm-hmm. or the good folk or anything like that. And I thought that it would be interesting to explore it. Yeah. And there are three things for me which sparked this. One was having watched Castle Rock, as I mentioned a few episodes ago, mm-hmm. um, I got a real yen for some Stephen King books <laughs> and I hadn't read Needful Things in ages and Needful Things is set in Castle Rock. So I've started rereading it and I'm about 60% of the way through. And I suddenly went, oh my God, he's a fairy cobbler kind of thing. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. It's like a, having watched uh, a Castle Rock, I, I longed for some Stephen King. So I entered into a contract with Stephen <laughs> King. <laughs> Uh, no, no. The only contract I'll enter into with Stephen King, who might genuinely be a real life fairy cobbler, yeah. is, is that is that I will give him money in exchange for one of his books. <laughs> That's it. Deal's done. Um, there's there's other things as well, and it it started me thinking about some some other issues that sort of feed into this whole trope, which we'll explore in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things was something Madeline said in a recent episode, where she said a child's wish is an adult's nightmare. And I went away and I think it must have been playing at the back of my mind. And I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of like the Tenth Kingdom. That's, you know, you, you wish for a fairy tale as a child, maybe because you're told you should wish for a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And then if you actually got to live within the parameters of a genuine fairy tale, it would be terrifying. It would be. And that sort of fitted in as well. And the, the other thing was Hucker and Blackthorn research, which is a constant ongoing thing. I'm always coming up with new and interesting tidbits. And, um, <laughs> so I have some stuff on the Pied Piper of Hamelin for in a while's time. <laughs> Intriguing. So, um, yeah, no, I'm I'm very into this episode as well. <laughs> Jules, <laughs> Jules was like, hey, Madeline, how about... And I was like, yes, <laughs> I read the first line. <laughs> the suggestion. And I was like, yep, 100%. Um, <laughs> because, well, because I've actually been reading um, or listening to Spinning Silver by Naomi Novak, which Jules recommended a while ago. It takes me a while to get to get um, the chance to read most of the books that Jules recommends, but I do, I do get there. Um, and it, it it touches on this idea of 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 debts and wishes and. Um, the cost of things um, in a more sort of adult way and what what is the reality if you actually lived in a fairy tale so um, I was very interested in this angle straight away Um, but before we kind of really get into it I think obviously the first thing we want to do is actually explain what the hell we mean by a fairy cobbler what is the fairy cobbler trope yeah now I don't know if that's what it's really called. That's just what I'm naming it. Um, but 
I'm sure it's a trope once we get going that most people will will say, oh, I've seen that in that or in that science fiction film or mm-hmm. I've actually seen that in a piece of adult fiction um, in, in terms of it, it, it had no fantasy context whatsoever. And it's a little bit more complicated than just be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Basically, it follows the idea that a stranger comes to town and offers people exactly what they want. So, or, you know, you meet them along the road. So a farmer is taking his horse to market and the horse throws a shoe and he can't get the horse any further and suddenly a stranger is just there and said oh I can shoe your horse for you and the farmer's kind of like well I don't have an awful lot of money and the the person who offers to shoe the horse says well I can do it for you for a bargain kind of thing Mm. and it seems like a really good deal it seems incredibly affordable in fact the price almost seems negligible you might even believe that you are getting the better end of the bargain but the problem with these situations is that no one ever checks the small print. Yeah. And you will always, always pay more than you intend to or can afford. So, I mean, it's very classic of the promising your firstborn child before you've ever got married kind of thing in fairy tales. Yeah. I mean, these are ye old con men, except it's kind of interesting because with the fairy cobbler trope, um, the thing that sort of separates it from just sort of the con man uh, you know, character is that the con man character will usually lie in yes. order to to get that. Whereas the fairy cobbler will, it, it, they won't lie. In fact, usually they could they tell the complete truth, the complete and utter truth. Um, they might be a little bit vague with the details, um, or they might just say things explicitly and be misunderstood. Um, but it's one of those key things where it's it's less on the oh I've been tricked by somebody evil, and more on the I wasn't I, I wasn't shrewd enough to actually take a proper look at um, what was being offered. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, in broad strokes, that's what happened. Something is almost too good to be true. Someone is offering you exactly what you want, not mm-hmm. need, but want, and that's an important distinction. Yeah. And it's at the point when you really want it as well. Yeah. Um, And I think the point that most of these stories are making is that when you really want something to the point where you almost can't think of anything else, it can consume you and make you act in accordance with the worst aspects of your nature, which is kind of what these stories explore. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So some jolly stuff to start us off with today. Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so let's look at some origin stories. Yes, okay. So uh, we've got a few here. Um, Some I'm not familiar with. Some Jules is and some I know. Um, So I'm actually going to start from the bottom of our list just to be really (laughs) annoying um, and mention the Goblin Market. Yes. Um, there's obviously more to the idea of a goblin market than Christina Rossetti's poem, which was <laughs> dealing with a lot of repressed Victorian sexuality as well. Yes, um, and all sorts of you know unpleasantness. Um, and uh, yeah, there is there is more than what it says on the tin. But what it says on the tin is essentially a market run by goblins. But what are goblins if not fairies? <laughs> yes. And you see that it's the goblin market um, explored in fiction, and it's almost one of those ones where you almost can't find the origin because it goes way back before um, the goblin market poem, hmm. and it turns up in various fairy tales and things. 
and they're always offering uh there's nearly always a fruit motif as in they're nearly always offering rare exotic beautiful sweet gorgeous looking fruit sweet things mm. aren't they yes it's always and sweet the, <laughs> always sweet and to the point where it you know you'd look at it and think it's wholesome it's inviting you're being pulled in it's a feast for the senses before you even taste the fruit um, but not you find in almost all of these things that there is always a price for tasting the fruit and the people who approach the goblin market honestly in terms of okay i'm sort of going forward and i don't just mean honestly as in i'm willing to pay for what i what i receive mm-hmm. but honestly in the sense of going forward without any evil in them mm-hmm. in their hearts um, tend to sort of come out with a few bumps and bruises, but generally okay. The people who go forward and then all their acquisitiveness and greed rises to the fore tend to come to very sticky ends. Yes. Very sticky ends sometimes, literally. Yes. Um, <laughs> we're not going to go into that grossness, but uh, yeah, um, it's it's not a good time. Um it's a really interesting one because the goblin market employs this idea that I really love about sort of fairies and fairy food, but also kind of fairy rules, which is that they are not human rules in the least. That might seem obvious, but they do feel quite alien. And there are some very particular kind of codes of conduct. And these codes of conduct seem to almost exist in order to catch out human beings who who are privy to kind of letting their greed take over them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I've seen variations of the goblin market where someone deliberately tries to cheat the goblins. It, this is something I've actually drawn on in some of my work later yes. on, <laughs> which is... You know, amusing to me, but also incredibly gross, if I say so myself. Um, but you tend to find the people who go forward and try and cheat the goblins, try to get more for their more bang for their buck kind of thing. Mm. Um, I've seen versions where they get turned into swine and then sold to a slaughterhouse. <laughs> I've seen versions where they end up becoming enslaved. So they, you know, they taste the goblin fruit and they become fairy slaves and that's it. They're taken away from the human world. Yeah. Um, and they can't entirely escape. And, you know, when this sort of hits the Victorian era in terms of mythologies crossing over, mm. um, you find that these people have tasted goblin fruit and they, you know, the old idea of once you've tasted it, you, you start wasting away. Mm-hmm. Because if you haven't, if if the goblin fruit is making up for some lack within you, then you will never ever be satisfied without it so you want it all the time so part of what imprisons them is the need to taste the fruit again um and it kind of makes me think of the whole the whole um the upper class laudanum addiction yeah during the victorian era whereby you know it was incredibly repressed in a lot of ways and p- many people were not happy at all and they just drugged themselves through their day <laughs> yeah uh, which isn't actually a great way to spend your day to no. be honest I mean, there were so many young ladies who were kind of like, oh, no, your your emotions are overcoming you. You're supposed to be calm and quiet and withdrawn all the time. And they were getting they were getting through the day with opium pastels. So can you imagine just sort of like I'm feeling slightly angry, angry. I have an emotion and then drugging it away with an opium pastel. Yeah, I mean, it's horrifying. Um, but also I can just completely understand how, you know, lack of any real 
um, what's the word? Not in- outlet, a- emotional outlet, outlet, emotional outlet, but also things to do, things that interest you, you know, the, the inability to kind of show passion or interest or excitement, you know, in certain things. Um, I mean, that's that's going to that's going to start eating away at you. Yeah. You know, it's it's the rat in the cage situation, really, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. If, so, you, don't, I mean, if you don't have enrichment, then... Uh... <laughs> then you will find some way of, of surviving torpor. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the whole idea of the goblin market is that they roll in with their brightly coloured stalls and things, and there's music, and again, it's the scent of the fruit and everything. Um, but generally, they are tempting you into giving far more than you actually want to. Yeah. And again, it's really, really interesting with the goblin market because once more, if you're ever sort of in a position, I say this as if you are likely to enter into a goblin market, dear listener, um, which (laughs) hopefully you're not. But, you know, um, once again, you're put in that position where um, they are tempting you to almost lie and cheat. If, yes. if you're if you're inclined to and lying and cheating is against the rules but at the same time they will not withhold truths but they will they will sort of withhold truths or they will make opportunities for you to lie and cheat as often and as much as possible so they are trying to trick you in the same way that you're trying to trick them but the truth the truth is what lies at the heart of it Yes. Um, because ultimately you will never get away with tricking a goblin at a goblin market. You just won't because they, because if you think you're tricking them, they've tricked you. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> you've fallen for their con. Um, so yeah, it's it's never going to be a good time really at all. No, absolutely. Okay, uh, another example, Wayland Smithy. Now, Wayland Smithy is actually a sort of Neolithic monument, which is on the border of Oxfordshire. It's mm-hmm. not terribly far away from where I live. Um, but it's named, I mean, we don't actually know it was Wayland Smithy, or if he ever existed. But the <laughs> whole idea was that it, it kind of got that name and that name got stuck. Um, the idea was that if you left your unshod horse outside at night with uh, the silver to pay for it if you came back to fetch your horse in the morning then you would find your horse better shod than than anyone else could do in the entire country mm. uh, it's the whole idea of a fairy smith but the more you delve into the idea of wayland wayland by the way is the saxon name um, there was a period of history whereby the saxons came over and actually there wasn't the wholesale slaughter of the celtic tribes the celts and the saxons kind of settled together and interbred and the Saxons took on a lot of Celtic gods and the Celts took on a lot of Saxon gods and they renamed each other's gods. And that's where you get the name Wayland from. It, it's the name of, basically, it's the Saxon name of a Celtic smith god. Hmm. And we've lost the original Celtic name, so we go with Wayland. Um, and then obviously with the advent of Christianity, he got pushed back into being one of the good folk um, and may have been all along because, you know, you have... Across Britain at the time, there would have been the Welsh version of the Tuatha de Danann, yeah. um, who were actually in some ways kind of nastier than the Tuatha de Danann. <laughs> that, that's, I mean, that's really pushing it. I mean, you've got to, you've got to try hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, in some ways, they were, they had a, a grimmer outlook and um, were 
you know, women had fewer rights under under that kind of rule. But anyway, without going off on a tangent, that that's where Wayland is from, although, you know, Saxon name. Um, and you propitiate a smith god with some fine metal, so silver, gold if you've got it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um and you get your horse shod and you, you lead the horse away and it, it, it's sort of taken care of. But there were times when um, someone would attempt this without leaving proper payment and they'd come back to find the horse shod and then they'd find themselves transformed into a beast which had to run in the wild hunt. And if they were especially unlucky, they would be the creature being hunted by the wild hunt. Oh, that's fun. That's great fun, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I have to say we've lost an awful lot of context for these myths because they they weren't written down. They just didn't survive. So we've got fragments and it's fragments that, you know, monks who were clearly young and very bored of writing about God uh, were writing down what it amounts to Arthurian fan fiction and, you know, Mabinogian fan fiction. Yeah. Um, which is fascinating, but of course we don't have the absolute original stories anymore. But I do think it's interesting, and this is something that would sort of echo in the memory. And once again, it's a story about, yeah, you pay what you owe, you don't cheat. And if you cheat, especially if you try and cheat uh, a supernatural being, then expect to have a very unpleasant and short life. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It it brings into sharp contrast, sorry, not sharp contrast, but sharp focus, this idea of debt as well, yeah. um, which is, if you think about it in terms of our modern world, debt is universal. Pretty much everyone I know is in debt of some kind. It might be student loans, it, you know, it might be uh, you're in your overdraft or you might need to just pay a friend back or so, something like that. Like yeah. debt is literally all around us. We have, you know, credit cards and stuff like that. You know, it's based on this idea of you pay off, you you pay something before you have all of it, and then you pay it off, etc. Um, but that does just doesn't fly the moment you get into the fairy world at all. It really, really doesn't. Um, and you cannot escape it. You cannot cheat it. Um, the terms in which you you make an agreement are 100% binding. Um, and it's not just binding on a, well, if you don't do this, I will come and find you and break your kneecaps kind of binding. It's binding on a spiritual level. As in, the moment you agree to something, um, if you break it, it's like your own body. It's like nature itself will right the wrong. Um, in some ways, you know, you don't even get, you don't even see the um, the, the sort of the, the person who's been cheated coming back for revenge. Um, it it just sort of happens as if the world, the universe, has to write this, has to fill in this 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 gap, and will just take it instead. Um, and that's kind of frightening. But it's I think it's one of the things that makes it so interesting is just the force of this of this power. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really interesting that a recurring motif in sort of tales of the fair folk Mm. is how much they despise being, how much they hate the idea of being in debt themselves. It's the reason you don't say words like thank you um, in these stories. The reason for that is if you say thank you, you're conferring a sense of obligation. You're conferring 
um, you're admitting to a debt. Now, if you admit to a debt to the fair folk, then they will definitely cash in on it. <laughs> and the reverse is true. They're, they absolutely are supposed to hate being in debt, which is why if you do them a good deed, they will overpay you. They will go out of their way to refill your barn with corn for the sake of a single loaf of bread in, in order to push that debt back onto you because it is absolutely something that can be used in magical terms against them, and they do not like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's actually one of the the core things that I've based my um, my children's book, the law in my children's book, on. Yeah, is this idea of debt, um, and that if you if if you know if a favor is done, a favor is owed, and they have to. There's literally no way around it. Um, it will. Yeah, they just they just have to. <laughs> it makes for so much fun. <laughs> So um, I think the next one I want to talk about is the monkey's paw. Yeah, always really creeped me out, that story. Yeah, it's a great story. Um, I think it's Victorian. I think so, yeah. Yeah, Um, it's definitely... (laughs) I love the fact in the monkey's paw, they're like, oh, this is all sort of mystical African magic. And um, (laughs) I was just like, you didn't need to go that far, mate. Yeah, you really didn't didn't need to go that far to get this kind of story. Um, But yeah, within it, it's basically this this family of three um, get hold of this monkey's paw. And it it has sort of three fingers. And if you make a wish, the the one finger will curl and it will grant you the wish. But the guy who gives it to them, because he, he actually he tries to throw it in the fire and they, they, they stop it and say, yeah. oh, we'll keep it. He says, it, it will all go wrong. He promises them it will all go wrong. And so the first thing they do is they say, oh, they make a wish. What seems like an innocent wish, which is, oh, we wish we just had the money to pay off the, the mortgage, essentially, because they're close to paying off the mortgage. Um, and they ask for a very precise sum. And it's not a humongous sum. But they, they just make that wish. And that day, their their son, he goes off to go and do his work in the factory. And the next morning, a guy comes saying, your son has been horrifically killed in, a, in an accident in the factory. He just got caught in the machinery. Um, but the factory ha- have given you this as compensation, and it's the exact amount of money they needed. Yep. Um, and there's several reasons why this is interesting. And then I'll talk about what they do with the with the other two wishes in a second. But there's several reasons why this is interesting. Because first of all, it brings into sharp focus the idea that um, something cannot be made of nothing. In order to make the money, the, the money couldn't just sort of appear out of nowhere. It had to come from somewhere. Um, and thus it found the easiest route in order to be able to provide that money. They made no stipulation that, you know, this this money had to come from a particular place. Um, and so it, it's almost this this idea of the law, laws of equivalence, as it were. You know, I'm going for a bit full metal alchemist here. But something cannot be made of nothing. Life cannot just bring you um, something from thin air, which yeah. I, I, I really, really like. Because it, it's also a valuable life lesson, if uh, you know, it's all valuable life lesson, but that in particular is a great lesson in that whenever you think about, oh, I wish I had some money and stuff like that, um, consider, all right, where would it come from? Um, 
this is not me saying I wish my my employer paid me better. This is a different situation, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so what happens is they make that wish. Uh, then the next, uh, a few days later, obviously the family are grieving and the mother uh, basically makes a wish for her son to come back. And that night, a... <laughs> Uh, that the son, who was obviously, as I said, horrifically killed in, uh, in machinery to the point that he was totally unrecognisable, uh, does return and they can hear him at the door groaning and he's, he is, essentially sounds like a zombie and it's, and it's terrifying. Um, and so in, in this sort of the last minute, the, the father makes a final wish to basically say, I wish, you know, that he was dead and back in the ground. But doesn't he wish to undo the first two wishes? Uh, no, he doesn't. Well, I'm not sure. I think he, he... Because all I know is that he does something... He can't undo the first one because he, he, they've still got the money. Um, but it depends on which version. Because uh, I do know this rather frightening or, or this rather harrowing final line, um, which is that, you know, he, he wishes his son back in the ground and everything goes quiet and he spent his last wish and his wife just says why didn't you wish for our son to just be whole and healthy again and he he goes and he goes why why didn't i wish for for our son to be whole and healthy again and it's harrowing (laughs) and it's just like actually you had an opportunity there but maybe that would have also gone wrong (laughs) yeah i think that might have been a later spin on it i think the original they said um, I wish we'd never made the first two wishes or I wish we'd never had the monkeys poor in the first place. Hmm. Um, so you get a bit of a paradox, but everything is undone and they just go back to being how they were before. Ah, okay. All right. I see. I've not heard of that version. Um, I've just heard of the one where <laughs> it's just harrowing to the end. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk about the Pied Piper of Hamelin because surely everybody must know this this particular sort of fairy cobbler type story. Yeah. Um, obviously, Hamelin Town, which, by the way, exists mm-hmm. and is actually a thriving town now in Saxony, in Germany, where they still refer to themselves as Saxons. So, you know, that's where the Saxons came from to, to England mm-hmm. um, many, many, many centuries ago. Um but anyway, they they were infested with rats and, you know, there were rats everywhere and they the people were saying to the mayor that you must do something about this. And finally, a man in bright colours comes to the town playing his pipe um, in order to earn his living. I mean, that's already suspicious if you know fairy tales. He's turned up, he's brightly coloured and he's playing a pipe. He plays really well. Hmm, what could he possibly be? <laughs> But he actually said to the mayor, I notice you've got a lot of rats. For this sum of silver, I will take care of your rat problem. And the mayor, sort of thinking, well, I've got nothing to lose. The rat poison's not working. Uh, says, yeah, sure, fine. And the piper plays a tune and all the rats stream out of the town and they follow the piper as he leads them away over the hill and down to the stream where the rats jump in and drown themselves. Mm. And then the piper goes back to the mayor and says, there you go, I've taken care of your rat problem. I would like to be paid. And the mayor laughs at him and refuses because, you know, the rats are gone now, so why should he pay up? Which like makes the mayor the stupidest person ever, and he should definitely not get elected for a second term. No. <laughs> um, and the piper says, look, if you don't pay me, then you are going to be very, very sorry. And the mayor just sort of waves him off and has some men throw him out of the town. That night, the piper comes back again and plays a tune on the pipe. 
but this time he summons all of the children out of the town. Mm. They all go, they all follow him, and they won't listen to their parents, they won't do anything except follow the piper. And he leads them up the hill, and for a little while there, I think most of the adults are a bit worried that he's going to drown the children the way he drowned the rats. But instead he leads them up to a huge rock on top of the hill, taps on the rock, and the rock opens, and he leads the children inside, and they were never seen again except for three children, one who was lame and was unable to keep up, one who was blind and was unable to see uh, the way through the rock, Mm -hmm. and one who was deaf who got left behind in the town because he was unable to hear the tune, so he wasn't summoned by the piper. Yeah. Um, Now, aside from the sort of... that now we would would include everybody in that sort of story, um, this is very clearly... uh, a fairy cobbler thing you will pay me what i'm owed or you mm-hmm. will pay a lot more than you ever wanted to pay me yeah um brief sidebar there is historical precedent for this story there is a town called hamlin as i've said it exists in saxony in sort of northeast germany and during the 12th century the town lost 112 children which, you know, sounds really careless, but no, the 112 <laughs> children just were, were gone, were gone. The child minders were off were asleep at the switch that day. Um, no, th- th- there is some interesting stuff behind this. Now, the, the, the church, with, which actually holds the record of this, um, dates back to the 12th century, the later 12th century, and the record speaks of a period roughly just under 100 years before that because the record says it is two days and 100 years since we the people of Hamlin lost our children and then it sort of lists the the, the, the people that were lost, the, these 100 odd children now what could have happened was that they were talking about children in terms of adult children, we I mean we might consider sort of 14 to 20 year olds still youngsters Mm. nowadays but at that age you were sort of looking at getting married and setting up a family home of your own yeah and we know that there were parts of Romania that were desperately in need of people who were industrious and hard-working to go and colonize the area I say colonizing colonize in terms of it's just forest as in there are no people there at all Mm. but they want to make part this part of Romania Transylvania in fact believe it or not, <laughs> they want to make it prosperous and they want to set up outposts so that um, all their freight and things that go by river, you know, they, they, they've got safe stopping points. So they sent out people to to recruit and these people wore bright colours and they had the gift of the gab and quite often they played a musical instrument which attracted attention. Yes. Um, which is really interesting. Now, if you lived in Saxony at that time, you might have been kind of, I actually don't want to just live my parents' life. This is this is hard grind. I want adventure. I want to go somewhere else. And that kind of tale might well have flamed your imagination if you're a young person. I mean, let's remember that your teenagers are when you should actually be going out and doing something a bit different. Yeah. You will engage in risk-taking behaviour. It's kind of baked into you. Um, so yeah, what could have happened is these 112 children could have been sort of like adult children or adult in the terms of the time, mm-hmm. and they all went off to Transylvania <laughs> and set up um, Saxon colonies. And we know that there were Saxon colonies because that part of Romania is still very heavily German-speaking. Yes. <laughs> so that might be the origins of the story. It's a plausible one. Yeah. And now it's got a fairy cast over the top. 
Yeah. Um, maybe the mayor in this situation was supposed to pay a bag of silver to this recruiter to just go away and not say anything. Yeah. And maybe he didn't. So, and so he did speak and the children went with him. You never know. Yeah. And it's also possible that the, that the so-called rats were the initial people that the, that the people of Hamlin found undesirable. Yeah, um, possibly. So they were happy to get rid of them. Um, and then, and then, but not our able-bodied children who are basically our retirement plan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Um, it, whenever I think of the Pied Piper of Hamlin, I always think of the um, play The Pillow Man. I don't know if you've ever read that, Jules. Not familiar with or that one. Or seen it. Um, it is uh, uh, by Martin McDonough. Uh, um, uh, it's it's set in Russia. <laughs> the main character is called Kachurian, Kachurian, Kachurian. Right, okay. <laughs> it's actually a really harrowing play about child murder. Well, um, it's Russian, so... Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Um, <laughs> and in it, basically, the, the story basically follows a, a writer who writes these very harrowing stories about children dying, um, who's been brought in by two of the police on suspicion of having actually killed some children who've who've died mysteriously like their um like the characters in in Kachurian Kachurian Kachurian's books it's very funny it's very dark humor um but it is incredibly harrowing um but it's it's well worth the read if you ever get the chance as a play it's actually very quick to get through um and in uh one of the stories that Kachurian writes um is this sort of this this story where a, a, a man comes into into town um, in bright clothes um, and he's got a wagon and you can hear in the wagon all this sort of chipping and cheeping and screeching sounds um, and he stops by a young boy who's sitting on the street and um, he asks the boy a question um, and the boy is polite to him or, or helps him in some way I can't remember the exact details and he says, I will reward you, child, close your eyes. And so the child closes his eyes and the this stranger brings down a hammer and breaks his leg. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is harrowing, uh, obviously, for the child. He cannot see in, in what way this is possibly going to be a reward until the end of the story, where it talks about the fact that the stranger takes the children um, but one boy cannot keep up because he's hobbling um, and thus doesn't get taken. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's a definitely a different sort of version of that story and not really the fairy cobbler, but there, I, I, I always comes to mind because it's this, yes, it's a reward, but it look, feels like a punishment. But it's also, it, it feels quite fairy-esque in the, this is me doing you a favour rather than... <laughs> anything else when it's no one else would define this as a favor yeah absolutely okay a final origin example is uh the bowl of porridge or sometimes called the three wishes it's been told and retold but i think the original version was actually irish hmm. um what happens is uh a man a common man is is out in the forest and he finds 
a tall and lovely woman with her foot caught in an iron trap and she cannot get free. So he helps her and in return she says she grants him three wishes mm. and he realises that he has just assisted one of the two Ahadidanan. Um, he runs home in great excitement to his wife who is just ladling up bowls of porridge for both of them. Mm-hmm. And the man sort of tells her about the three wishes and his wife says, no, we need to be really, really careful about this. We can we can absolutely change things. Um, we don't necessarily need to li- live in a hovel and go barefoot anymore. We could, we could really make, but we need to be very careful about how we spend the wishes. And mm. the man's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then looks at his porridge without enthusiasm and says, I wish I had a sausage instead of this bowl of porridge. <laughs> and poof. The bowl of porridge disappears and a lovely fat sausage appears on the plate in front of him instead. The wife is so incensed that the man has wasted one of the wishes. She said, I wish that sausage was attached to the end of your nose. (laughs) And poof, the sausage is indeed attached to the end of the man's nose. And they're forced to use the third wish to undo the first two wishes. So when the two Ahadadanan give you three wishes, you are supposed to wish for health, wealth and happiness. And that's it. You're not supposed to make strange, petty little wishes like that. That's why it always goes wrong. But this is kind of where, you know, obviously there's the Arabian sort of Aladdin, etc. type idea about wishes. If you get three wishes, the third wish will always be used undoing the harm of the first two wishes because humans cannot be trusted with wishes. Um, But yeah, this is kind of the origin, certainly for this part of the the West. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I think it's only in sort of the more recent sort of more Disney adaptations where you ever see those three wishes going well. It's it's like this ultimate warning of don't mess with magic because you, (laughs) whatever you think you're entering into, you're not. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which is a good place to go on to. So what exactly does this trope have to offer us a modern audience? Um, well, I, I do actually feel like there's a life lesson in there, and it, nothing to do with what to do with how to deal with magic folk. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, I think there's several there's several levels on it. On on the very surface level is this message that words have power. Um, this this sorry this may sound very contrite um but as i said just on the very surface level words have power when you wish for things when you put that out there um you have to really consider exactly what you are saying um and not just when you make wishes but remember also with with the sort of the celtic beliefs the irish belief was that when you cursed someone as in when you swore at someone, you were literally cursing them. That's why it's called a curse word, um, because it, it was deemed to those words had power and saying them had great power. Um, and there's some truth to that. Um, so I think on the very surface level, you do get this idea of, of the power of words even on their own um, and how you say them and how you shape things um, can make a big difference in your life. Yeah, I mean, I would have not put that as a surface level meaning, but yeah, I would absolutely agree. And it does definitely play into the trope of using exact words and double meanings. Yeah. And that if you are clever and thoughtful with your words, you can be the person who weaves the trap instead of the person who falls into it. But you've 
there's a lot here to be said about actually listening to what's being said to you the whole sort of audible version of reading the fine fine print isn't it yeah absolutely um it's kind of funny uh because (laughs) as i said i've been reading um spinning silver and not to to give too many spoilers uh but within it there are these fairy people they're called the staric and the staric uh, there is a young woman named Miriam who is a money lender, and she's actually she's very very good at handling money, as in she knows how to invest properly. Um, and so one day she blithely, um, in an argument with her mother, makes a um, a comment saying, "Well, I can turn silver to gold," which is what she has done um, in so much as she's been able to take a lot of silver and convert it to to gold through investment. Um, and the Staric overhear this, and the Staric all want gold. And so the Staric Lord comes and he presents her with gold, uh, sorry, silver, essentially to say, all right, we'll turn this to gold. And the idea within in Spinning Silver is that a power claimed and three times challenged and proven is a power, is, it becomes a real power. So what happens is that he challenges her by presenting her with lots of silver and basically saying, prove that you can turn it to gold. And each time she very cleverly invests, invests very cleverly sort of figures out how to do it and changes the money into into gold pieces instead. Um, and in doing so, she actually gains the ability to literally turn silver to gold, <laughs> which is fantastic. But I really like the fact that the Staric, the Staric, who is you know obviously one of he he is a, a a fairy lord a fairy king falls into his own trap because he doesn't believe that she can actually do it um in terms of before she actually has the power he just thinks he'll be able to get a little bit of gold off of her before he yeah. then kills her and the problem is that you know he he make he he gives her silver she changes it he gives her more silver and she says well what will you give me in return for doing all this for you. And he says, oh, well, you know, if you can do this, then I'll make you my wife. And then, and then she does it, and he's like, oh, shit. Because <laughs> he doesn't want to marry her, and she doesn't want to marry him. No, but she's kind of like, well, those are my options, marry you or be murdered by you. Hmm. What's a girl to do? Guess I'll turn this into gold then. Yeah, and as you find out, it's, these two things are not um, exclusive. <laughs> she's like he does try to murder her even after they've been married so you know um it's very worth it's it's well worth reading um but yeah i i do like the fact that um there's also this idea of of this kind of this this honor bound and with wishes and that even the people who have complete mastery of them or believe they have complete mastery of them um will fall will fall into it there's also another idea which which really interests me which is the idea that the staric essentially says if you can turn all of this to gold then you will be you i will have to take you i would have to take you as my queen because you've um because it's the only honest exchange for the favor that you have done me yeah um which is again that idea of debt in that he just continuously is just falling into further and further debt because she keeps proving that she can do it instead of failing, which would give him the the power, the right to to destroy her, essentially. 
yeah um, so it's it, a complete reversal of the whole idea of you know you, you're cheating at a goblin market because you are looking at something that seems mean and unintelligent to you and therefore you think you can take advantage of it and that is how the Starek sees the the humans basically yeah, yeah. oh <laughs> stupid man but it is it is darkly very funny when it's happening it is it is um, it's very good. okay so i mean other things that this trope can tell us is obviously ignore what gordon gecko said greed is not good <laughs> greed is the kind of hunger that you actually can't ever satisfy so it's best to nip that in the bud um mm. and if you haven't got this message already trying to cheat someone is a really really bad idea and it absolutely will rebound on you three times it doesn't matter if you are practicing witch or not it absolutely will come back on you yeah absolutely um and, you know, there is a big difference between wanting something and desiring something and greed. Yes. G- greed is about excess, essentially. Um, it's Once you've submitted to greed, you can never be content with what you have. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of like the things you own will come to own you if you attribute more of importance to them than you do to other things, which are perhaps more ephemeral and less tangible so the other people in your life friendships relationships um good company and making good connections with other people Mm. you know you're going to end up like scrooge mcduck with a massive money bin and not very much else (laughs) (laughs) or you know you might not even have the money bin you can be an absolute miser over some very very mean things that really don't actually have a lot of meaning and they don't really enrich your life and the only thing that ultimately really enriches your life is is connections with other people and learning yeah that's not to say that it's wrong to want things it's not wrong to have possessions that you enjoy and that that you love and that you wouldn't want to part with there's nothing wrong with that yeah i'm I'm staring at my loaded bookcase right this second (laughs) um you know, I obviously like being able to just see my books. I like being able to read them. Um, but I wouldn't attribute more importance to them than I would, say, you know, the life of my cat, for example. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, next is um, <laughs> gift horses should be looked in the mouth. <laughs> I've all, well, yeah, the whole idea is sort of you don't look a gift horse in the mouth because you know what you might not have a horse and it doesn't matter if it's an old nag you're being given it's still a horse and Mm. yes there is a hint of truth about that but when someone turns up with exactly what you want just exactly when you need it you absolutely need to look that horse in the mouth because who's benefiting in that situation you think it's you but the chances are it isn't yeah i absolutely do it politely but (laughs) Yeah, it's it's also basically also about understanding, um, you know, there's there's a difference between oh, your your elderly aunt has come her, has come to the house and has brought you, you know, an old microwave or something. I don't know, maybe not a microwave. Those things can explode, um, but you know, <laughs> something else. And it's like okay, yeah, I don't think she's out to get me, um, but. It, con artists work by the fact that they seem genial they seem nice and they give you an offer of something which which will often just feel too good to be true and actually one way that sometimes con artists make 
make it feel like it's less of a con is to throw up a little bit of a problem but not enough to sway you. So, oh, okay, so we've, uh, you know, you would need to do this or uh, we can do, you know, something like that, which makes it a little bit, makes it seem a little bit more realistic because you think, oh, okay, so there are problems, this is real. Um, but that's why you need to look at it closely. Very, yeah. very closely. It's a, just a good life lesson in general. Um, it's particularly in a culture of the internet where we're not used to reading the small print anymore yeah absolutely um so um, obviously there's the be, care- be careful what you wish for thing because yeah. quite often what you what you wish for is not what you actually need yeah yeah um, uh, we've abs- we've covered that entire subsection of the trope in another episode so i won't really go into it but you know obviously it touches on be careful what you wish for you mm. might end up with a sausage on the end of your nose for example <laughs> um okay so the fairy cobbler Mm. character in these stories might start off trading in good faith and quite often they do mm-hmm. and they turn nasty if you attempt to cheat i mean i think madeline's onto something when she says they give you the opportunity to cheat mm-hmm. and see if you'll take it because yeah. once you've done that then they can absolutely do whatever they want and that's kind of the game they're playing um Sorry. The other thing is obviously they're seducing you into a bargain you can't afford a lot of the time. Yeah, I just realised something and <laughs> just suddenly went, hold on a second, is God a fairy cobbler? I was just thinking of Solomon, where he's like, Solomon, <laughs> you may have <laughs> wealth, um, wisdom um, or power or something like that. Which one? Which one would you like? And there was obviously a right answer in that. And he said wisdom, and God was like, then you shall have all three for choosing the right answer. Yeah, and that is something, again, you see that when some uh, one of the fair folk is testing a human, you'll quite often see the same thing with, with certain heroes and, and things like that. As in, you know, you pick the right one, then then you'll absolutely get everything. Yeah. And the the interesting thing about that is that sometimes as the reader, it feels obvious what it's supposed to be. And then yeah. sometimes it's not obvious. And, and you realise that when it's not obvious, um, you are in the same position as the character is supposed to be in that they can only be true to themselves, therefore. And it is yeah. a mark of, of truth to the self, not manipulation. Though sometimes it's, especially in the Greek myths and stuff like that, sometimes it is about being sneaky, sneaky, because they do love they do love a trickster. Um, but yeah, it, it's quite interesting um, in, in that way that it, it's about seeing the truth of the self, because they're kind of weighing up your worth, your soul. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at some examples in speculative fiction, which is a bit more modern than sort of <laughs> than the Pied Piper of Hamlin. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, I was talking about needful things at the beginning. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's definitely worth a read. It's a fairly long book, but then again, Stephen King. So what did you expect? And the cast of characters is really, really well drawn, but. Other than one or two of them, most of them are average to kind of really shitty people. Mm. And they're made worse by the presence of a man who comes into town and opens up a bric-a-brac shop called Needful Things. Mm. It's strange, that that shop. People go and have a look because it's a small town and they're curious. 
and Leyland Gaunt seems very personable, etc. And it's amazing how many people find exactly the thing they really, really want in that shop. And at such a, res such a reasonable price. Um, and Leyland Gaunt makes bargains with them. He takes a certain amount in money and a certain amount in favours. And the favours usually come down to uh, quote-unquote harmless pranks on some of their neighbours to be done quietly. Mm -hmm. And I'm sort of at the... I'm two-thirds of the way through the book now and <laughs> it, it's quite clear that he is micromanaging for his own purposes the complete breakdown of this society by playing on people's greed and by the things that they want rather than you know genuinely need yeah and he's dissolving you know the the connections between people and he preys on the vulnerable there's a woman in it who has terrible arthritis in her hands and she's sort of only about 40 mm -hmm. and you know uh, her hands are twisted and some days they are so painful she can't do anything she couldn't even zip up her coat or or do a shoe yeah and you know being offered something that would just take that pain away it is kind of that's that's a horrible thing to do to prey on somebody but he is absolutely a con artist in that respect mm. Um, he's obviously not entirely human, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> but there's something very strange going on with Mr Gaunt. And it's a little bit too convenient that people are finding exactly what they want in his shop. Um, and I think it's very much like the fairy fruit thing, whereby, you know, one of the fair folk offers you a piece of fruit and you go mad for this stuff to the point where you start, you'll start scooping it up off the ground when it's crushed underfoot. And what you're really eating is sort of, dead leaves and mouldering fungus and stuff yeah so it, it's that sort of thing it's just really really interesting how playing on people's specific greeds and vulnerabilities can actually completely tear a town apart yeah it's it's that sudden idea of, of the individual caring more for themselves than the whole community yeah they lose all sense of proportion when it's something they really really want he's kind of teaching them all to be misers <laughs> Um, I've obviously mentioned uh, Spinning Silver, so I'm not going to talk about that, but it is a good example of s sort of some of the fairy cobbler ideas. Um, there is, of course, The War of the Roses, uh, the film. Yeah, this is a weird one. This is, isn't supernatural at all in origin. I just thought it was an interesting look at personal greed. Mm -hmm. um, the War of the Roses is kind of like the ultimate bad romance film. <laughs> In the sense that you have you, the two main characters meet, they fall in love, they get married, and they have a lot in common. And they seem to have a really, really good relationship. Um, and one of the things they've got in common is this amazing house, this amazing mansion, which they buy and they do up. And they both love it. They love that house. They love that house so much that eventually they start to love the house more than they love each other. Mm. And then various other things happen and they end up getting divorced. And the big fight is over who is going to get the house. And, you know, they're, they're called Mr. and Mrs. Rose. So that's why it's the War of the Roses. It has nothing to do with... Um, <laughs> the actual War with, of the Roses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's nothing to do with that period of history at all. This is, this is sort of 1980s. Um, and, spoiler alert, but you get to the end of the film and 
it becomes less about who gets the house and more about who doesn't get the house. Mm. They get so locked into this idea that one of them deserves the house and the other one doesn't that they end up having going into physical fight over it and they end up kind of killing each other. And then there's just this weird bit at the end where they both look at each other as they're both sort of so injured that they're dying and they're going to die before an ambulance gets there. And they're almost laughing at it because it was such a stupid thing to come to blows over. <laughs> That's harrowing. Thank you. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to, to look okay. out for that. Um, yeah, I mean, in the, the Witcher game series, which I will admit I haven't played, but Alan's played and I like to sometimes watch because the visuals are beautiful. Mm. Um, but there's a character called Gaunter Odim who basically again is kind of is basically a fairy cobbler character yeah and Geralt is kind of questioning him and saying you know you're setting these people up to fail and Gauntra Dim says no not at all I always give them exactly what they want it's just that most people want things that are unworthy um I thought Mm. that was worth mentioning because that is literally the heart of this entire thing as in we are not always wise enough to want things for ourselves that are actually good for us yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's also quite funny in that way because he, <laughs> the fairy cobbler character in that regard is sort of like a chaotic neutral character in that yep. they know that they're sowing discontent and, and setting people up for disaster by giving them the opportunity, but they cannot claim any responsibility because... All of the misfortune is brought on by these people themselves. They merely provide them with the opportunity to make wishes which they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, of course, we have Aladdin and also the princess and the frog, um, if we go into sort of Disney. Um, but also if we look at sort of some of the original fairy tales as well. Um, slightly different endings on stuff in that regard. Yeah, yeah D- Disney doesn't normally do the, the grim fairy tale the ending. The grim fairy tale, yeah. Um, I have to admit, I've only seen The Princess and the Frog once, but I think, as I recall, she gets offered something and she doesn't, she does the hasty, okay, fine, I wish this kind of thing. I think she wishes to be a princess. <laughs> And gets turned into basically a frog princess, as I as I recall. But it is the whole exact words where you you're not careful about what you wish for. Which the Disney version or the original version? Do you mean the Disney version? Oh, that's not I what don't... happens in the Princess and the Frog in the in D- Disney version. Well, as I said, I've only watched it once. So if you want to weigh in, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, in the Disney version, she. Um, she gets turned into a frog because the prince gets turned into a frog um, and he, to to return back, he needs to kiss a princess and yeah. he sees her and thinks she's a princess because she happens to be dressed as one and they kiss but the magic reverses because he she's not a princess um, and so she gets turned into a frog, essentially. Right. Um, but I do think you still get that fairy cobbler idea in there because you have the the main the main bad guy whose name I've just forgotten, um, and he has friends on the other side, as it were. Um, yeah. And he has made exchanges for power, 
um, which ultimately results in his demise because he can't pay the debt that he owed. And his friends, who seem to all be, you know, he called them friends, um, don't care. They're not friendly with him at all. They drag him down to hell at the end because, gleefully, like, they have literally just been waiting for him to fail. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's... Uh, but there are different versions of, of the frog princess, I think, which... Um, um, or the princess and the frog... Um, which well, I mean, if you're if you're going with the Frog Prince, the original story is very, very disturbing, yeah. and it isn't a golden ball the frog retrieves from the well <laughs> at all. It's something else. It's also golden, but it's definitely not shaped like a ball. Okay, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna park that particular vehicle and just leave it there for the time being. Yep. Um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, if ever there was a fairy creature, um, Willy Wonka has got to <laughs> has got to be. Yeah, and the, I mean that's the book that you love as a child, and then as you get older, this sense of unease creeps into it when you think back. Mm. Um, depending on you know, obviously the films are both versions of the film are, in my opinion, quite disturbing, mm. but. Mm-hmm. Willy Wonka owns this fabulous chocolate factory and then because people keep trying to steal the secrets he shuts himself off from the world and yes it's producing Wonka bars and chocolate and candy and sweets and things but nobody goes inside and then suddenly there's this massive competition whereby Mm. if you find one of five golden tickets you will gain access to the chocolate factory a tour and a lifetime supply of chocolate which surely every child would want that you know and yet the five children who of the five children who go the four who get their wish and go and see go into the chocolate factory many of whom do it not just through the luck of opening a wonka bar and finding that there's a golden ticket inside which is what happens to charlie because he's very poor yeah the others have kind of you know managed to get their their way in through buying hundreds of thousands of chocolate bars just to get at a golden ticket yeah by essentially cheating by essentially cheating in in the terms of the rules and they are all four of them introduced to a horrific chocolate factory related nightmare (laughs) but again you have that situation where the rules have been laid out for them and they've been told not to do things or been warned against it and they've gone ahead and done it anyway so Willy Wonka is absolved of any guilt um and, and and at the end, you do see that they've um, they've all <laughs> in, at the end of the book. They do all just get in the trucks and leave with their life su- life supply of chocolate. Yes, um, so but they've you know all they're fine. Them. But they've all they've all been <laughs> really they, they've all been horror. They, they've they've some of them are quite disfigured now. I mean, yeah. there's Mike TV who is now seven feet tall because they had to physically stretch him. Yeah, and um, uh. Violet Beauregard has, is actually still Violet. They couldn't quite get the formula right, so she's bright blue for the rest of her life. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it's again one of those ones where it's like, loved it as a child. The whole idea of going into that first room where it's shaped like a valley with a chocolate waterfall and chocolate river is amazing. Yeah. And then you really think about it and it's kind of like, actually, that's horrific. As an adult, that would be horrific. It is. It's it's very scary. What's interesting is the Gene Wilder movie. They add this whole other component, which sort of brings in really sort of escalates that idea of greed, 
which yeah. is that all of the children were going to betray Willy Wonka for money. They were going to take the life, life supply of chocolate and then they were going to betray him for money at the same yeah. time. And the only one who wasn't going to do that was Charlie as well. So, But still here we have that fairy cobbler idea of um, I'm setting you up to betray me. I'm setting you up to try and trick me and cheat me. Um, and if you do it, there will be consequences. But if you don't, um, I will see your true character, which is ultimately what Willy Wonka wants to do because he wants to pick an heir. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a weirdly creepy film, and Gene Wilder is a weirdly creepy sort of sociopathic Willy Wonka. He is. Which, I, let's face it, Willy Wonka is. Yeah, I mean, I rewatched I rewatched it <laughs> recently. <laughs> And the bit in the tunnel, what the hell? Uh, like, I remember being disturbed it's, by that as a child, kind of and then like, I thought it could be that bad. And then I rewatched it as an adult, and I'm like, you see a chicken being beheaded and all sorts, and I was like, what? It's, it's, like, it's like they thought, let's put a bad acid trip in here as well, because that will really sell it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's terrifying, and it just cements the idea that Willy Wonka is some kind of fae who. Um, <laughs> Yeah, is maybe he's just setting them up for the for the for the horrors of corporations. Who knows? Um. Um, anyway, final modern modern ish. Although this came out in the early nineties, example I want to give is the Tenth Kingdom, which you'd have to track it down on DVD or something, guys. But mm. it is amazing, and while the effects are very very nineties, the actual story is still holds up to the test of time. I believe. Yeah, and it. It follows a young woman named Virginia who works as a waitress and she lives with her father who is the janitor of um, this particular set of flats in New York Mm -hmm. on the edge of Central Park, which is the reason they can live on the edge of Central Park. And she sort of says, my name is Virginia and I live on the edge of the forest, but it's actually Central Park and my dad's Mm -hmm. the janitor kind of thing. I'm not living in a fairy tale, but there's that hint at the beginning that she would really kind of like her life to be a fairy tale because her life has been very difficult and full of loss and suffering. And she kind of gets that unspoken wish by being taken through a magic mirror into a place uh, where fairy tales are literally real. And at one point she stops in the middle of a, b- a bout of tears and goes, I always wish my life would be a fairy tale. And, and now it is. And she's kind of got about a mile's worth of hair growing out of her head because she offended somebody. <laughs> she offended some gypsies. And it's all just an absolute... She's kind of like... The, this is the absolute quintessence of... Yeah, if you were actually transported into a fairy tale, it's not going to be neat and pretty and Disney-fied. It's going to be a lifelong horror story. It is. It really, really is. And one misstep will get you into a lot of trouble. Is yeah. this the one with the big bad wolf? Yeah. See, the, the other... The other <laughs> I made Madeline watch a, a section of this. At some point, you must finish it. Yes. <laughs> but Wolf is a great character. He is literally a wolf, but he also looks like a man a lot of the time. It's just he's always got a tail. And he was... You know, it's the 90s. The effects were still in their infancy. Um, But Scott Cohen, who plays Wolf, is amazingly good. And he is sent by the Wicked Queen to track down Virginia because Virginia has, unbeknownst to her, managed to find the lost prince of of the Seventh Kingdom who'd been turned into a dog. (laughs) 
Um, she's looking after this dog, thinking that he is a dog and not actually a prince in disguise. And Wolf is sent to capture Virginia. And uh, then he actually catches sight of her in, in the flesh, as it were, or in a, in a photograph, and just falls madly in love with her. It's kind of like, well, look, my God, she's perfect. Look at her. She's, she's creamy. She's a dreamy girl kind of thing. And he bribes her father into telling him where his daughter is um, in exchange for a dragon dung bean, which will grant the person who consumes it ten wishes. Um, Anthony is not necessarily the best father. He's also had a life where, you know, the major piece that's gone missing, Virginia's mother, has had an effect on him. Mm. And he's a lot more jaded and cynical and petty in a lot of ways. He was someone who was once a millionaire and he lost everything. Yeah. And she's just kind of I mean imagine saying to a strange man okay well yeah okay this is where you'll find my daughter admittedly he thought she'd be safe with her grandmother um, just in exchange for this thing that might grant wishes anyway as predicted the wishes go horribly wrong and in a hilarious way so the, the person who'd been getting at him to fix the door to fix the elevator and things his, his so-called boss he sort of in a moment of anger says i wish you and your whole family would kiss my ass forever and be my kiss my ass and be my slaves forever that's it and then in the next scene you you see the guy who was his boss sort of fixing things around his house <laughs> and then his family starts coming in and his the elderly grandmother is trying to get the door fixed and she's this, this tiny tottering woman with this massive door swaying dangerously and then the next thing he knows there's there's more family flying in with packed suitcases compelled by this wish to come in and serve him and he's like i had no idea you had this many family <laughs> But he's still petty enough to say things like, oh, this is your wife, is it? Um, well, I'm going to take her out and buy her some underwear. And the guy's kind of like, oh, yes, master, this is fine. And Tony asks for a million dollars and it just randomly turns up. And apparently it's the million dollars from a recent bank robbery and the police turn up on the doorstep. <laughs> um, anyway, every single wish is kind of worse than the one before. And the only one that really works out is the one where he goes, I wish I could understand what this dog was saying. And it turns out the dog is the prince from the Seventh Kingdom, which is... <laughs> It's really, really well done. So, I mean, that's a series that people should definitely watch. Track it down. Um, it really explores this idea of the fairy cobbler and be careful what you wish for. And exact words really, really cleverly. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, okay. Uh, so before we go, um, let's actually just very quickly just talk about how we have used the fairy cobbler um, idea in our own writing. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say I've directly used the fairy cobbler in I Rule the Night, but you do get a mysterious creature turning up in M's dream and mm. allegedly offering her something um, and tricking her into into a state where she has a ban placed on her where she can't talk about it. Yeah, um, She gets... She manages to turn the tables quite nicely at the end of the book by also weaving a trap with words. Mm. Um, which, considering how outmatched she is against this creature. Yeah, she she does very, very well in that way. Um, and I, I know that you've obviously drawn on it for, for Harker and Blackthorn um, in, yeah. in, in certain ways. 
without giving it away giving away spoilers <laughs> yeah well i mean some of it would be a spoiler for you because you haven't read the, these particular books yet either so <laughs> yeah um, um and, and also in betwixt and between where i am literally dealing with the shay so. yes of course <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um and as i said with my children's books um uh you obviously do get um that idea of the sort of the favors um and debts and things like that uh which do pay play a significant part of the story and the way that the whole plot works um and i think it's definitely something which is going to start appearing in kestrel as well later on down the line yeah definitely (laughs) (laughs) so you have that to look forward to yes there's sort of something like that also in the next Hamashia cycle book as well. I mean, I mean, also to be honest with the Cole Corrigans, they were like, "You want us to bring someone back from the dead?" Oh yeah, sure. No it way that can go wrong. Yep, no way. No at way. All. No way at all. <laughs> you're paying much more than you think you're paying. Um, so yeah. Uh, Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you have one for us. Yes, slightly unusual setup for this one. Mm -hmm. But I have been reading Seeds of a Better Nature, which is a prequel novella to forthcoming works um, basically set in 16th century Italy. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't Italy at the time. It was obviously various city-states. But, you know, just so you know roughly in the world it's set. Yeah. And it fe- it's very queer and it features vampires and it's incredibly cool. Now, I don't know if guys uh, listening remember one of our guests, Ellis Johnson, which is L.S. Johnson, mm-hmm. um, who was on talking about one of her most recent books at that particular time. But this is her work. And the way you can access it is by going to primamateria.online. And if you go there, then you can read the first two parts of Seeds of a Better Nature for free. And then if you want to read the rest of it, I mean, she's releasing a part every two weeks, and I think there's five parts, then you can sign up to sponsor her. So a bit like Patreon. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at about $3 a month or... uh, what's that like roughly one pound 80 a month if you're Mm -hmm. in the uk and that gives you access to everything on the website um the prequel novella which is very good so far and also the forthcoming novels of prima materia which follow the adventures of these these gloriously queer vampires so it's the world building is very lush um the language and everything's really interesting and you know it's historical Basically, if you kind of enjoyed Anne Rice, but you wanted slightly gayer vampires, then this is for you. <laughs> okay. Do you like Anne Rice? Do you want it to be more gay? Then, boy, have we got something for you. That's yeah. um, that's a really cool idea. Yeah, so uh, I really recommend it. And this is someone who, in my opinion, absolutely deserves to be supported because she's out there writing um, the books that she would really like to be able to read and that loads and loads and loads of people are saying i want vampire fiction but i want queer vampire fiction i don't want love triangles it's like well this is this is what you want guys so this is where it is (laughs) okay that's fantastic and on that note guys we're going to say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week 
yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com please note no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast (laughs) 